is from the Gospel according to John, chapter 3, verses 1 to 11. You can find that passage in your bulletin. Of course, if you have a Bible or a Bible app, you can turn to it now. We're going to read John chapter 3, verses 1 through 11. And just a reminder again, there are sermon notes or a sermon outline that you can follow on the back of your bulletin. Beginning at verse 1 of John chapter 3. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? Jesus answered him, are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. This is God's word. Yeah, it was for, through verse 15, apparently, not verse 11. Sorry. <laughs> so we have been, uh, these last uh, weeks, we have been looking through um, the gospel according to John. And we have been looking at uh, encounters that Jesus has with different people and different groups of people. So we've seen him encounter Nicodemus. Uh, we've seen Jesus encounter his own mother in the wedding party, and today we're looking at this encounter Jesus has with Nicodemus. Now, this whole passage is all about something called the new birth. You see this phrase, born again, happen a couple times in this passage, and it's referring to this teaching called the new birth. And the new birth is, is one of these Christian teachings that is shared in all traditions of the Christian faith. So, it doesn't matter if you investigate uh, Protestantism or Catholicism or Eastern Orthodoxy or any of the various branches in Protestantism, you'll see that all these different traditions in Christianity, they all agree on the necessity of what's called the new birth. They all agree that Christians are people who are born again. But what does that mean? It's a term that we use, it's a term that's used to describe Christians all the time, but what does it mean? And, and you can tell that the culture, and even Christian culture, is confused on this issue, actually, because you'll hear people talk about, well, so-and-so, yeah, well, he's a born-again Christian, or so-and-so, yes, yeah, she is a born-again Christian, as though you can differentiate between 
born-again Christians and other kinds of Christians. And usually in secular culture, uh, to describe somebody as a born-again Christian is actually a pejorative term. You know, oh, they're a Christian? Well, no, they're not just a Christian. They're, a, they're one of those born-again Christians. Like they, they take it like super seriously or they're sort of fundamentalist in their views, etc. But to be born-again is to be a Christian. To be a Christian is necessarily to be born again. So it's a tautology or, or it's, it's redundant to talk about born again Christians. So what does it mean to be born again? That's what we're going to look at this morning. We're going to clarify this from this passage this morning. We're going to look at how uh, the new birth is radical, how it's spiritual, how it's demonstrable, and how it's possible. Those are the four things that we're going to look at in this exchange, this encounter that Jesus has with Nicodemus. Okay, here we go. First of all, the new birth is radical. The story opens with this man, Nicodemus, again, coming to Jesus. And it says in verse 1 that Nicodemus was a, a Pharisee and a ruler of the Jews. And that's an important detail about this character because it tells us two things. First of all, he was very, very religious. That's what it meant to be a Pharisee. So the Pharisees were a particular group of Jews within Judaism at the time who were considered kind of the hardcore Jews, okay? These were the guys and gals, I suppose, who were very serious about keeping the Old Testament law. In the Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament, there were 613 laws listed there, and the Pharisees had committed to one another. They had kind of made a pact that they were going to keep every single one of those laws flawlessly. So they were seriously obedient to the Old Testament law. They were serious about their religion. So that's the first thing we know about Nicodemus. Typically, you think of Pharisees, you know, because they do... You know, they're not portrayed real well in the Gospels, typically. We have kind of a negative attitude about them, and, and that's understandable. But, but they were also very sincere about trying to practice their religion to the best of their abilities. And, and Nicodemus was one of those guys. But it also says that he was a ruler of the Jews, which means that he was a member of a very elite group within the religious and political structure of Palestine at the time called the Sanhedrin. And the Sanhedrin is kind of like, it's kind of like the Supreme Court, except not just religiously they had power, but they also had political power among the people as well. And so that means that Nicodemus, if you take him as a whole package, as a character, he is devout, he is wealthy, he is seriously influential and powerful. He is an elite, Okay? And that's why it says that he comes to see Jesus at night, because it's risky. He's got a reputation, he's got a community that he's a part of, and so he comes, which is a big deal, the fact that he came at all, but it's risky for him, and so he comes at night. And then it says in verse 2, it says, he comes to Jesus and he says, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher, come from God, for no one can do these things that you do unless God is with him. So he comes respectfully, and he comes looking for answers from Jesus. He's attracted to Jesus. He's, he's interested in Jesus. He's curious about Jesus. 
he says, look, Jesus, there's a lot that I can learn from you, essentially. And then Jesus responds immediately with, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And it's almost like Jesus cuts him off. So, so Nicodemus comes to Jesus, and he's very respectful, and he says, Rabbi, don't forget, Nicodemus is part of the Sanhedrin himself, so he's pretty pretty elite kind of guy. He's up there in, in, in society, and he comes to this humble carpenter, uneducated, and he uses this term rabbi with him, and he's trying to show respect, and he's saying, you know, I can tell that you've come from God. You're a very important individual. And Jesus goes, da, 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 da. you cannot see the kingdom of God unless you've been born again. It's like he's short with him. It's like he cuts, through the cha- cuts to the chase, you know, he's cutting through all the, the garbage and, and, and stuff that, that Nicodemus is trying to, to play, and he says, you must be born again. Why? Well, it's because Nicodemus is playing out a very old story, and the old story is this, and it gets played out all the time. He is interested in Jesus as a teacher, and that's it. He's interested in Jesus' ethical teaching, his philosophy. You know, he sees him as a wise man who's very much worth listening to. And today, people will say that all the time. There's lots of people who aren't necessarily Christians. They wouldn't call themselves believers necessarily. But they think Jesus is cool. Jesus is their homeboy. You heard that phrase before? Jesus is my homeboy? on t-shirts that celebrities wear. And what they mean by that is that, you know, I like what Jesus has to say. He has things that have teaches, you know, turn the other cheek. That's really cool. That's good. You know, love your neighbor as yourself. That's really cool. That's good. And people have been attracted to Jesus as a teacher uh, all throughout history. People say that today. His moral teaching or his care for the poor or his desire to see social justice and see uh, races and classes reconciled with one another, people like that. And so they see the Christian faith as primarily kind of a form of moral improvement through religious practice and discipline. So society can be improved, and I personally can be improved, and my morality, my life can be better if I practice the practices of Jesus and Christianity, and if I discipline myself, okay? And so they, they really, what they do is they adopt what you could call the Judeo-Christian ethic as faith. And Jesus is saying, that doesn't work. That change is not radical enough. It does not go deep enough. Let me try to explain this using an illustration. Let's say... Let's say you have an apple orchard, okay? And you grow apples because you'll, you want to make apple juice. You produce apple juice. But at some point, you decide, you know what? Uh, there's no money in apples and apple juice. I want to grow oranges, and I want to make orange juice instead. And so you go into your orchard, and you start to prune back all the trees. And you hope that maybe by pruning back all the trees, they'll start to produce orange, or, uh, oranges. And that doesn't seem to work uh, as the tree grows and blossoms and it starts producing apples and you go, oh, okay, well, I better try something else. So you go out and you buy a whole bunch of oranges and you staple them to the tree in the hopes of turning your apple tree into an orange tree. 
but of course that doesn't work and eventually apples start growing up under the oranges and pop off all the oranges and now you've got an apple tree again. You go, okay, well that's not working, so I know what I gotta do. I gotta properly nourish my trees in order to make them good orange trees. And so you go out and you buy a certain mixture of fertilizer and you fertilize your orchard in the hopes that it will produce apples and, or sorry, oranges. And once again, uh, the next season rolls around and you've produced uh, apples all over again. Doesn't work, obviously, because apple trees make apples. They don't make oranges. And I know that sounds silly to you, uh, but listen, people do this all the time. They look at their life and they say, you know what, my life is not going the way I expected it, the way I think it should. I've perhaps made some bad choices. I've done some things that have have, uh, produced bad fruit, let's say. I need different fruit. And so they start to prune themselves, meaning they cut things out, right? Maybe it's substances. They've been addicted to a certain substance, and they have to cut that out, and they get clean. Or maybe they're in toxic relationships, and so they cut those toxic relationships off. Or they've been engaging in uh, unhealthy activities, and so they stop doing those activities. And they're trying to clean up and keep their nose clean. Or they start stapling things onto their life. Maybe they think about religion and they think, you know, I've got to start doing good. I've got to start doing the things that, uh, that a Christian ought to do. And so they start going to church or they start reading their Bible. They start praying. Maybe they start fertilizing like crazy. So now they're reading books about theology or they're listening to all kinds of podcasts or they, they, they sign up for uh, the sermons of very famous pastors and they listen to them like crazy and they get great knowledge and understanding of the Christian faith and all the while they think that as they prune as they prime and as they uh, fertilize that they've become a follower of Jesus through that process now don't get me wrong okay every single one of those practices is good so I'm if you're here and you have a problem with a substance, cut it off, okay? I'm not telling you, don't worry about it. Uh, I also think it's good to read your Bible and pray, just for the record. And please, read good Christian books and listen to, to good podcasts and develop your knowledge of the faith. Those are all good and important, but what Jesus is saying here is not a single one of those goes deep enough. The change that is needed in our hearts is more radical than that. Look at verse 6 of the passage. It says, That which is born of the flesh is flesh. A duh. That which is flesh, or sorry, that which is born of the flesh is flesh. Like begets like, right? Trees don't change themselves. Apples, trees produce Apples, orange trees produce oranges. And if you simply prune or fertilize or, or try to sort of prime the pump in your life, but you don't actually deal with an inside change, it's not deep enough. It hasn't gone far enough. That's why Jesus says you need to be born again. The Apostle Paul, in his letters in Corinthians, he says, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone and the new has come. Or how about C.S. Lewis, who we all know I am a big fan of? On the front of your bulletin, listen to what he says. God became man 
to turn creatures into sons, not simply to produce better men of the old kind, but to produce a new kind of man. It is not like teaching a horse to jump better and better, but like turning a horse into a winged creature. See, the new birth is radical. Radical is from the Latin word radix, which means root. To be a Christian means that you have a new root. There's a new root to you. Now, does that sound weird to you? If it sounds a little bit weird to you, that's okay. It sounded weird to Nicodemus too. Because right away, he's confused and he's like... Um, how can I, as an adult, go back into my mom's womb and get born again? It doesn't make sense. Well, that's why we need point number two. The new birth is spiritual. The new birth is spiritual. Verses 5 through 8, the whole point of verses 5 through 8 is this. There are different types of li lives or lives. There are different types of lives. And there are different types of births. Flesh gives birth to flesh. That's biological life. That's physical life, right? But Jesus is saying that there is also a higher, a greater, a deeper, a more profound, a more fulsome life that is the spiritual life. That's why in verse 6, the second half is, it says, that which is born of the Spirit, meaning the Holy Spirit, is spirit. Again, I know this concept is hard, so let me try to explain this with an illustration, sort of. There are different types of life or levels to life. Think about a plant. A plant has life. A plant is alive. It has vitality. But the life of a plant compared to, say, a dog is no life at all, right? Because a dog has some level of consciousness. It obviously has mobility, uh, it has some kind of relational ability. Those of you who have dogs know what I'm talking about. Your dog loves you. You can feel that. Those of us who don't have pets, we look at you weird. But you know deep in your soul that your dog has an infection for you, right? So it has a, a, higher, it's a f higher form of life than a plant. But a human life is a much higher form of life than an animal's life, right? Because we have aesthetic abilities, we have cognitive abilities, we, we have self-awareness, all this kind of stuff. Of course, there's the affection thing. And, and we know this is true because we say, you know, if somebody acts like, like an animal, we say, oh, that human being is acting like an animal. And we talk about people who have perhaps like major brain injuries or something like that, and they're living in the hospital, and, and all they do is breathe in and out, and their organs are moving, but there's nothing else going on, there's no brain waves, we say they're in a vegetative state. And so what Jesus is saying here is that there is a spiritual life that is higher than biological, physical life in this, to the degree that human life, or even to a greater degree than human life, is greater than plant life. Or to put it another way, there is a way of living, there is a way of perceiving beyond just the natural Realm. It is deeper, it is richer, it is fulsomer, if that can be used as a word, than just 
natural, physical, biological life. Now, I know that this probably sounds a little new agey to some of you. And those of you who are here this morning and you're not a Christian, oh, this afternoon, and you're not a Christian, it may sound nutty and even offensive to you. Because it might sound to you like I'm saying, what are you saying, you're better than me? You're saying you have a better life than I have because you're a Christian and you have this access to this spiritual life? No, what I'm saying is, this doesn't make sense to you. And the reason it doesn't make sense to you, you're not going to like. Plants just cannot, don't have the capacity to understand what it's like to be a human. And in the same way, a non-Christian who doesn't have access, who has not been through the new birth, who doesn't have the spiritual life, cannot make sense of what that spiritual life is. In a way, you could say they don't know what they're missing. And maybe you're thinking, are you saying you're smarter than me? Are you saying that, that Christians have a higher IQ, that they're more perceptive? Not at all. Not at all. Keep listening so I can tell you what I am saying. Point three. What I am saying is, is that the new birth is undeniable. It is undeniable. In verse 8, Jesus says, The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Here's what Jesus is saying. The Holy Spirit, you can't see, you can't control. Just like the wind. You can't see the wind. You can't control the wind. But you can, the, the evidence of the wind's work and existence is absolutely demonstrable. It is undeniably demonstrable. You look at the trees and the leaves are rustling. You look at the sky and the clouds are flying by. You feel it on your face. And in the same way, Jesus is saying that the work of the Holy Spirit is undeniable in the life of a person who has been born again. In the life of a Christian. There is undeniable evidence to demonstrate that they have entered or they have experienced this thing called the new birth. There are undeniable marks of it. What is it? Well, in verse 3, Jesus says this, unless someone is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And then in verse 5, he says, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Now, kingdom of God language is language that God, Jesus uses to describe life under God's reign. And there's all kinds of dimensions to it, but he gives two dimensions right here in this passage. The first thing is that the new birth means you can see the kingdom of God. You've been born again if you can see the kingdom of God. This is what's different about the human life, the natural human life, and the spiritual life that God creates in someone who is born again. Let me explain what I mean. Things that were nonsense to you before are no longer nonsense. And when I say nonsense, I mean it not like, that's nonsense, stupid, and you dismiss it. I mean, it honestly doesn't make sense to you. It doesn't 
It doesn't resonate with you. It doesn't do anything to you. So for example, when we sing songs like, I cast my mind to Calvary where Jesus bled and died for me. I see his wounds, his hands, his feet, my Savior on that cursed tree. And then, and then somebody starts raising their hand when they're saying, oh, praise the name of the Lord our God. And you look at them and you see them raising their hand and you look at them and you go, what's up with that? Like, I just don't get that. What are you so worked up for? When, when I say to you, your sins are forgiven, Jesus lived the life you should have lived and died the death you should have died, before you were born again, you went, hmm. After you're born again, you go, I'm so astounded by that, I want to cry. Things that were nonsense, that didn't make sense to you before, they make sense to you now. See, biblical truths affect you. When you hear that God is absolutely sovereign and that he is in control of all things and you're going through the garbage of your life, you're going through the hardest thing you've ever been through, ever, and before you were born again, someone told you God is in control of everything, God has the world in his hands, he's got your life in his hands, and you can be sure that every day he will, he will strengthen you and empower you and, 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 and lift you up so that you can face your struggles. Before you were born again, you went, that is bull. I don't care. My life sucks, and God sucks too. But when you're born again, you say, I don't get it, I don't understand it, but I'm holding on to it even by my very fingertips because it's all I got. And strangely, it is enough. You see the kingdom of God. Do you understand what I'm saying? Now, a person who's not born again, they're not stupider. They're not less good. They just don't see. They haven't seen. They can't see. And that's why it doesn't impact them. That's why it, doesn't, it isn't meaningful for them. The other thing is, is that you have entered the kingdom of God. And that means that, that Christ's priorities become your priorities. His values have become your values, and you want to live according to them. So you have, obviously, his commands. You know, you got the Ten Commandments, and you say, I believe the Ten Commandments, and I'm going to follow the Ten Commandments. Absolutely, but it's more than that, too. It's your, it's your worldview. It's your perspective on everything is filtered through your relationship with Jesus Christ as your Lord. And that that shapes how you think about things. And I know that that's nebulous, and I don't have lots of time to give you tons of examples, so I'll give you one that came across last week. So in our Engage group, I don't know how we got talking about, we talk, started talking about kids, having kids, how many kids, all this kid stuff, I don't know, came up. And at one point, Allie said um, she, was, she was pregnant with uh, their third child. She's a, she's a nurse, she was pregnant with her third child. None of her coworkers knew yet that she was pregnant, but they, for some reason, I, there must have been a vibe, Allie, because who does that, right? They start sitting her down and telling her, you know, you really shouldn't have another child. Not because she's such a bad mom, okay? That wasn't it. The reason was, and it's understandable from a certain perspective, the reason was, if you have more than two kids, life gets like uber-duber expensive. Ever try to take a vacation and you have more than two kids? Like, every hotel dings you, like, 
you wouldn't believe for that. Just one extra kid. And so they were saying, you know, you, you won't be able to pay enough attention to your children. There's all these extracurriculars you've got to put them in, swimming and gymnastics and soccer and music lessons, etc. You can't give them the kind of attention that they need in order to grow up and be really uh, uh, useful and successful members of society. You won't be able to go on vacation together, and you need time for just you and Brian. Don't have another kid. And they were sort of pleading with her to, to be reasonable. Now, I am not slagging anybody here who only has two kids. Chillax, okay? What I'm talking about is the criteria they were evaluating the decision by. It was a purely selfish criteria. We have a certain lifestyle we want to maintain. We want a certain comfort level. And therefore, this is what we have to do in order to achieve our, frankly, self-centered goals. Not everybody has two kids is self-centered, okay? So all of you two-kid people out there, not talking about you. I'm talking about that conversation. And I'm using it because it was so prescient. It was, it, it's real world. It actually happened just very recently. When you are born again, you have different priorities. One scholar put it this way. It's a little bit longish, but I think it's very clarifying. Um, he first describes the fall, and then he describes redemption and what happens when you go from fallen to redeemed. He says, it's as if humanity, hired as a storage, store manager, entered God's store called creation. So imagine you're entering a grocery store called creation, let's say, and changed all the tags, stamping on every item a price sticker that is completely out of sync with the value and price assigned by God at the store's opening. The cheap becomes costly and the costly becomes cheap. The authority of redemption is the license to return those price tags to their true value, an activity that will inevitably be fought by customers whose values align with the false prices. When a person, listen to this, when a person becomes a Christian, the price tags on everything are restored to their original value. Before, a man would spend his entire life to buy this world. Now... He knows that it profits a man nothing to gain the whole world but forfeit his soul. Before, a woman had to spend her days running around asking, what will we eat? What will we drink? What will we wear? Now, she seeks first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Before, they sought the praise of people. Now, they seek the reward that comes from their Father in heaven. Before, worldly wealth. Now, poverty of spirit. Before, laughter. Now, mourning. Before, bravado, now meekness. You see the change in Nicodemus, okay? Nicodemus comes to Jesus on the cover, under the cover of darkness to ask him furtively these questions about who he is, etc. Because he doesn't want his community to know and he gets all embarrassed and, and by it. You come, go to the end of the book of John and Jesus has died and Nicodemus boldly in front of all the Pharisees, he walks up to the cross and he says, can I have the body so I can give him the king's burial? He identifies himself fully and completely with Jesus. Now, let me make an important application specifically for young singles. I'm, I talked to you last week and I'm talking to you this week again. This is precisely why the Bible counsels Christian young people that they must, 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 must marry only in the faith. 
other Christian young people. It's not because non-Christians are, are not good. They're, you're good and they're evil. It's not because they're dangerous and you need to be safe. That's not it at all. It's because you see different kingdoms. If you're truly born again, you will have different priorities. And it is impossible to be truly one if that's the case. If at the center of your life is is pursuing Jesus and his kingdom priorities, and you want that other person to know the center of your life, but they don't know Jesus, they can't know the center of your life, and you can never, ever have that intimacy that you so desperately long for. That's the reason. It's not because God wants to make your life difficult for no good reason. God has extremely good reasons for why he says no to certain things. It's because he's pointing us always to a much, much greater yes. Last thing, last point. The new birth is possible. Why do I use that term? Maybe because the new birth is not something any of us can produce. We cannot make it happen in our lives. You can't make yourself be born again. And so I'm preaching to you a whole sermon about the importance of a thing that you can't accomplish. That can be kind of depressing at the end. Because what do you do about it? And yet, I, I don't want to leave you, you here thinking, wow, I, you know, I really wish I could be born again. But hey, you know, the Spirit's like the wind and He goes and does His thing and I can't control it and so I'll just sit here and wait. You can do something. You can do something. Look at verses 14 and 15. Jesus says... As Moses lift up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Now, Jesus is referring to a particular event in Old Testament where Moses is taking the people of Israel through the desert, and they're all getting sick. They're getting bitten by snakes, and they're dying from the poison of these snakes. And so God tells Moses, put a snake an image of a snake on a pole and lift the pole up. And if anybody who's been bitten by a snake looks, all they got to do is look at the pole. That's all they got to do. Just look at the pole with the snake on it. They'll be healed. And Jesus says when, when, when the people of God did that, they received their biological life back. They were saved. But on the cross, I will be lifted up. Just like that snake And when you look at me, when you trust me, when you see me dying on the cross for your sins and you put your trust in me, remember, you then are born again. You receive this spiritual life because this truth means something to you. Before you thought of the cross and you went, meh. Yeah, just, you know, Good Friday. There's all those wacky Christians walking through the streets and You know, following this guy, carrying a cross, you know, it's weird. Or it's nice. You think, oh, that was nice of Jesus to show us what love is really like when he died on the cross. That was great. But when you're born again, when you look, when you see him dying for your sin, you literally say, I say it with all reverence, you say, oh my God. that you would die for me. Amazing love. How can it be? Please pray with me. Father,
hard words again from you, but words of life as well. Thank you for them. Teach us, O oh Lord. Teach us, O oh Lord, that we that we must be born again. That there is no working our way into your good graces. There is no turning ourselves into followers of Jesus by how hard we work at it, whether we're studying the Bible or listening to sermons or reading books or doing good work. But teach us, Father, that all we need to do is look at our Savior living and dying and rising for us. Teach us that, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.